0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.
2: Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth.
1: Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring.
2: Turn it off. You're looking at a guy named Gagan. Gagan didn't like getting pushed around. So he pushed back, but he picked on a big man, someone out of his league. I wanted what he had, he refused to give it to me. There was a fight. You short Shorty wasn't as tough as he thought he was. So you had him killed. Only Gagan wasn't alone. He had a team. A couple of characters he found hiding behind a fiesta. Pila, a stray pup whose devotion no words can explain. I don't know what to do tonight. Oh, why don't you get yourself a Chacho like your girlfriends? I don't know how. You're telling me. And Pancho, the merry-go-round man. You don't think so much of Pancho. You're wrong. Pancho is a right guy. For a friend, he let himself be beaten to a pulp. Knife is good. It's easy to fix. I got three knives in me. When you're young, everybody sticks knife in you. And there's Marjorie, pretty smooth. So smooth, Gagan can't tell whether she's friend or foe. I'm not making a pass. I'm just being stupid. What's on your mind? You. And Retz, who looks out for the law. I got a job to do, Gagan. I can't be wasting my time keeping an eye on you. You better come along. What is this, a pinch? You already know what's going on. I know. They tried to kill you.
3: To the projection booth, I'm your host Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Carol Borden.
0: Hey, everybody.
3: Also back in the booth is Mr. Jedediah Ayers. Pleased to be here, thanks. November 2020 continues with a look at Robert Montgomery's Ride the Pink Horse. Adapted from the novel of the same name by Dorothy Hughes, the film also stars Montgomery as Lucky Gagan, a man who comes to the small town of San Pablo, New Mexico during their annual fiesta. That's all I'm going to say about this for now as I encourage everyone listening to this to watch the movie before listening to the episode as we will be sure to spoil things. Carol, when was the first time you saw Ride the Pink Horse and what did you think?
0: Actually, I only saw it a few years ago, maybe five years ago. I'm a big fan of Dorothy B. Hughes and so I've been searching it out and finally saw it. In some ways, I thought it was amazing and in in the Robert Montgomery way, I wish someone else had played the lead role as Lucky Gagan, but I, I struggle with that.
1: How about you, Jeff? Uh I saw it uh, looks like just a couple of years ago on, on uh, uh, Filmstruck when uh, they had it up there, and uh, I'd never heard of it before, believe it or not. I was pretty impressed with it, but just watched it a couple of times preparing for this, and uh, I am I'm continue to be impressed with it. So, uh, I, I like the title. I thought maybe it was uh, ACDC's Greatest Hits album or something like that.
3: I've heard of riding the baloney pony, but never the pink horse. I saw this film quite a few years ago. This one, uh, to both of your guys' points, it was very difficult to find for a long time. The only version that was out there was somebody had... Somehow recorded a 16 millimeter print of it. So it was beat to shit. Did not look very good at all. And then finally, Criterion put it out just a few years ago. And before that, it was just kind of floating around the bootleg circuit, very muddy. And so now watching it, it looks fantastic. I'm still kind of on the fence as far as, like, do I like this film? Do I not like this film? I think I do. And maybe it is that Robert Montgomery thing that is holding me back a little. I definitely love the book. And the book was, I mean, as is every other Dorothy B. Hughes book that I've read so far, just really riveting. She paints such great pictures of people. And the whole idea of this disenfranchisement of men coming back from World War II – Really, you know, we talked a lot about that when we talked about In a Lonely Place. In a Lonely Place is a way different adaptation of the book from (laughs) to to screen. This is a lot more faithful.
1: It is. I read the book after seeing the movie and, frankly, not remembering the movie that well uh, when I read it. Uh, And so when I came back to to watch the movie again, uh, I realized, oh, yeah, the ending is much different. But um, I don't remember what else was changed.
0: I think some of the way it feels different for me is, again, Robert Montgomery. Like, one of the things that really impresses me about Hughes's writing is she, she can write utterly wholesome characters, and you see everything from their point of view, and you stay with it. And you can also see how other people view them, even though they don't notice. So with um, Lucky Gagan. Or, or a sailor in the book you see how he's utterly an outsider in New Mexico and it enrages him that he's not that other people don't see him as normal but he's the, the stranger and the outsider and the one who's different and it makes him angry um, Robert Montgomery doesn't have that kind of see in him <laughs> I think he has a harder time projecting that kind of viciousness I don't know that I would want to spend an hour and a half, though, if he, with that movie, why I struggle with it. So I think that the character of Sailor in the book is a more terrible person than Robert Montgomery projects with Lucky Gagan.
3: This is one of those what some people call border noirs, where we are in the United States, but this is a lot of Latino people in this town. It is super steeped in Latino culture. There are many characters who are Latino, and it's kind of along the lines of Touch of Evil, these kind of things as far as like the outsider versus insider. And he's an outsider to the town, he's an outsider to their customs, but like you said, I think he would be an outsider even if he was in an all-American city. But I think it just serves to exacerbate just how much of an outsider he is that he doesn't even understand what so many of the people are saying, he doesn't understand the customs He comes to this town and they are having a huge festival, and there is no room at the end for him at all. He just kind of wanders around through so much of it, and that was one of the things about the Hughes book that I really appreciated. You feel the anxiety of the where am I going to spend the night you know i I have no contacts here I'm here to blackmail a man who killed a friend of mine. I might be killing him. I'm not really sure. So it's it's this really awesome tension that we have through so much of this.
1: I like the term border noir, but I also think I would put an even finer point on it, and I like to call it a gringo noir, whereas very much steeped in uh, race and not just being an outsider, but feeling superior regardless of whether he understands the local culture and what's going on, he doesn't particularly feel like he needs to. And I think there's a really good tradition in noir films, you know, both from classic period, you know, something like treasure of the Sierra Madre might go into that or uh, touch of evil for sure. But, you know, also more recent stuff. I, I love uh, William Friedkin's sorcerer. It's not Mexico, but it's South America. I think it, Uh, Definitely is a band of, uh, you know, Roy Scheider's uh, definitely part of this uh, outsider group, but he feels, he does feel kind of superior to, to the locals. You know, that's kind of the one thing they, they hold, you know, they may be complete outcasts in the rest of the world, but at least they're not locals to this place. You know, uh, three barrels of Melchiata's Estrada, I think falls into that maybe no country for old men or, or, uh, uh the, uh the counselor uh, is a really good one, I think.
0: I think part of his rage that's clear in the book and less clear in Montgomery's uh, portrayal is that he's not not only does he feel superior, he's enraged at the locals for not recognizing and treating him like he's superior.
1: Yeah, that's good. Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. There's a there's one I think all into that. Yeah.
0: I was thinking about like the different like how this relates to say ones at the time, like Detour, where you have the same sort of thing with William Tallman being totally brought down by his sense of superiority to the entire situation, both to the people that he's the to two white men he's kidnapped and then all the Mexican people that he encounters. And that's that's what does him in because he doesn't understand what's going on and he doesn't understand that they're tracking him as opposed to a different border noir, like border incident that's sympathetic. But, you know, your main character is Ricardo Montalban and it's less about that tension that, that Jed brings up.
3: And with Touch of Evil, the outsider is not a gringo. The outsider is a Mexican who's now thrust into this white world where he's also not only is he facing racism, but he's also facing corruption. Whereas in this, there is some corruption. And I I do appreciate that one of our main characters is this government agent who is asking Montgomery for help, wants to put away the bad guy rather than blackmail him or kill him. In that way, it reminded me a little bit of Pick Up on South Street, this whole idea of why don't you help your country out? And it's this, you know, this is 1947, so we're just after the war, and I'm surprised he doesn't say, you oh, know, don't go waving your flag in my face kind of thing, but he's very reticent to help out the government.
1: Well, yeah, he does say that, though. He says, "Don't wave any flags at me. I've seen enough flags." It's a great line, and I love Art
3: Smith as Bill Retz, this government agent. He just he exudes this kind of fatherly uh, energy, and just like he seems so patient all the time, it just seems to be like Lucky is his his son who is wayward, and he's trying to bring him back into the fold.
0: And he's very much like, "Have you had enough yet?" Okay, well, you go get beat up some more. You go get yourself into deeper trouble. Have you had enough yet? Well, I guess I'm going to have to save you.
3: This is one of those characters kind of reminds me too of like, uh, Clint Eastwood and a fistful of dollars. You know, he comes to town, he's trying to set up all these things and he eventually gets the snap kicked out of him but in this movie he never has the resolution as far as like now i am a heroic person once he gets the snot kicked out of him he just keeps getting more and more and more beat up to the point where he's stabbed he can barely walk it's nice that way that he isn't this superman that we see in so many other main characters where he's just like no i can take whatever you dish out instead he's he's really pretty beat up by the end of this film
0: He's this outsider who feels superior and rejects a lot of connections that other people have in the world. But it's like these connections, these friends he makes there who either see his good qualities that he's pretending he doesn't have. Or in the case of um, Art Smith, um, rats overlooks oh, them his bad qualities, and they're the ones that pull him out of it. Like they're the ones that pull his ass out of the fire in the end. That's what saves him.
1: When he's all beat to hell, it's a great trope in in a lot of hard boiled stuff, and in, you know, and also in another Gringo noir, like uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, where Warren Oates is just disintegrating mentally, talking to the head, and things like that. That that's what he reminded me of. But he never has that big heroic moment. of uh, He he has to rely on on uh, the the locals who he you know had disdain for in some way to save him.
0: And in the end, it's like his honoriness. He's not handing over the check as uh, the check that proves the blackmail happened. He doesn't do that out of a sense of right, or at least not on the surface. Uh, he does it out of a, an ornery sense of fuck you to this guy who's talking him down. <laughs> I kind of appreciate that, too.
1: Yeah, he, he realizes that uh, getting 30000 or $50,000 out of uh, Hugo isn't going to hurt him the way handing this yeah. over well. So that's, yeah, uh, that's a good point. Yeah, let's talk about
3: Hugo, who's played by Fred Clark, who uh, he's got great comic chops. I mostly recognize him from his comedies. But, man, he plays a really good villain, and he's he's back to this villain that we've seen before. He's the main villain, but he reminds me of the second-tier villain from The Big Combo, because he's got this incredible hearing aid. And luckily, they they don't use it as a torture device in this, like we saw in The Big Combo. But this whole thing of him with the hearing aid on his chest, and when he talks on the phone, the way he holds the receiver upside down so the hearing part is over his chest and the mouth part is over his mouth. It's such a, a strange thing, but it's, it's delightful, and I, I just really enjoy seeing him on screen. If anything, I wish there was more Hugo to this film.
0: Yeah, He was very enjoyable. I liked how he, they had him and he brought some of his more comic elements to his menace with like the way he laughed. And the the phone thing is both it ends up being absurd because it's sort of both sinister and strange and in another context would be funny. But in this one, it's not.
3: And I feel a little bad for Richard Gaines, who's his second in charge, because he's a great actor. We've seen him in Double Indemnity. He's got a, a really menacing look. He's a great heavy, but I feel like he doesn't have enough to do in this one.
1: Yeah, the hierarchy of Hugo's organization is not, not very clearly spelled out. I don't remember if it was in the book or not, but he just seems to have a, a never-ending supply of thugs to to bring in, but you don't get to know any of them. You no, know, and I thought for sure we
3: would know this Richard Gaines character, the Jonathan character. I was like, okay, great. He's going to be here. He's going to be you know such a barrier, but... He gets foiled so easily, and it's like, oh, all right. But then that does give a little bit more weight to our femme fatale, Andrea King as Marjorie, who seems like she's going to be helpful, but that ends up being treacherous. And it's interesting though that she's a femme fatale, but she's not necessarily trying to seduce. Or at least I didn't get the feeling she was trying to seduce Lucky Gagan. It just felt like she was being friendly, but I didn't see like bedroom eyes.
0: Yeah, I don't really see her as a femme fatale. I think if she were a guy, she would be Hugo's second. She's an operator. She's an operator just like Lucky and like Hugo, and she's trying to get hers. And, and you know, like a lot of femme fatales are doing that, but she she felt a lot more like, let's see when I screw the boss over and then we'll be rich rather than you're, you're entirely my ticket out of here and I'll play you until I can get someone else or some some better situation.
1: Even the scene where she is uh, dancing with uh, Lucky and and, uh, ultimately betrays him to uh, the Knife Men, I wasn't sure how to read her. You know, at the beginning of the scene, she seems like she's trying to still play with Lucky against Hugo, but then clearly she's leading him to a well-rehearsed ambush. And uh, you realize, no, she was playing Lucky with Hugo, uh, in that, in that situation. So a little, little muddy on that, but I think the, the term femme fatale is interesting here because, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean duplicitous or, or, or evil woman, you know, it's like an agent of fate, a woman who's an agent of fate. And that seems to be Pila, if anything, yeah. in this, in this, uh, context, you know, she, the first time she lays eyes on, on Gagan, uh, when she's looking right at him, uh, and we see that that full-on forward-facing shot, and he's got this blank, very washed-out white look to him. Uh, and uh, you know, she says she saw him dead, and uh, I think the the audience kind of gets that too. And, and she gives him the uh, the charm, the ishtem charm, to uh, for protection. And she seems more like the femme fatale in this uh, this film.
3: Yeah, and she is one of two Latino characters that help him out, that he keeps resisting their help, just like he resists Retz's help. And Thomas Gomez, who plays the character Pancho, when Gagan calls him Pancho, it doesn't feel like that's his name, I mean, it feels like it's more of an insult. Like, you know, you would call somebody Raul or something, you know, like uh, somebody who wants to be insulting to, I don't know, an African-American and call him like Leroy or something. You know, it's just like, OK, Poncho. But then he, he doesn't seem to mind at all. He's just like, OK. and And that may very well be his name. I don't know.
0: <laughs> it's not in the book. And I didn't get the impression that it was in the movie.
3: I didn't think so either.
0: <laughs> yeah. Everyone else. And in the book, there's this great line where he talks about when he hears who who he calls Pancho's name for the first time, he's like, you have a name like a duke. But yeah, he in the book, he's calling him Pancho after Pancho Villa. And I think that Pancho doesn't expect much from him and doesn't expect a lot from gringos like him who come into town. So he's heard it before, and there's only so much he can be angry about it, especially with some guy who's Playing superior while he's you know desperately sleeping in his shed because he has nowhere to go.
1: That's funny that I hadn't put together that he calls him Poncho after Poncho Villa because he calls uh, Pila Sitting Bull and Poncho Villa and yeah. Sitting Bull were definitely resistors to uh, yeah. colonization and things like that. The force that he would uh, represent. So that's that's an interesting point.
0: Fuse is not dumb.
1: <laughs>
3: Wanda Hendrix, who plays Pila, is. Not very Latina, let's say. She's got these striking uh, – I've seen color pictures – striking green eyes, and, and they come across as very light um in a black-and-white film. There's also the irony of this being called Ride the Pink Horse when we couldn't see what color the, the horses were. <laughs> anyway, I want to say she was – um but she's from Florida and I'm trying to remember if she's Jewish or not. I can't remember, but she's definitely, she's not Latina, but she plays it well. And, and she's so sweet and so kind to him all the time. And she's so embarrassed by her station in life. This whole thing about her not having any shoes is just like, wow. Um, you know, she is, is dirt poor as is, so many of the, the people that are in this town, the only people that seem to have any money, are the Hugos of the world. And everybody else is kept on the outside, literally. Like, her going into a restaurant and sitting down with Lucky is such a major thing for her. Come on, it's a little early but we have some lunch, huh?
4: Where? In the restaurant. Oh no, no, I can't. Why
2: not? Why not? What's the matter? Don't you answer questions? Ah, you don't have to be afraid of a restaurant. Not going to bite you, or scalp you. All you have to do is walk in, sit down, and pretend you're a human being. This way, please. Yeah, I want to sit over there.
0: Yeah, well, it, that isn't just poverty, too. That's race, but, and of course they're linked. Because I don't know how clear they were about it in the movie, but in the the book, she's I think she's probably but she's you know she's Native American. Like, which kind of brown face is happening in the movie is, is an interesting question, but she did a good job. You know, you sort of expect that there's going to be some white character in brown, brown face to play the relatable person, but I appreciated just like how much effort they put into having so many Latino actors in the film. And of course, you know, Thomas Gomez is, is delightful. I was reading he had a really interesting career on Broadway.
3: He seems to have had just an amazing career. And didn't I read that he got nominated for an Oscar for this role?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's supporting actor.
3: Every time Pancho is on screen, and I feel bad even calling him Pancho, uh, every time Thomas Gomez is on screen, he is great to watch. He's got this joy to him even when bad things are happening. And he has one of the most effective scenes, which is when he's being beaten up by these two thugs, one of, like you were saying, Jed, one of these endless thugs that Hugo has. We don't necessarily see the beating as much as we're looking at the young people on the horses of the merry-go-round where we get the title, ride the pink horse, where we get these reaction shots of them as they're spinning around and they keep coming face to face with this brutality of Pancho being beat up that to me is like the scene of the movie you can forget lucky gagan it's this violence against this poor man as he's trying to help lucky and keep the secret of where lucky's at that's the moment for me in this film
1: It's another parallel to, uh, the big combo, uh, where it's got that great torture scene where you're just listening to the jazz soundtrack Mm -hmm. and you're, you're hearing, um, you're seeing, seeing facial expressions and things like that. But yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful, stylish scene.
0: The other thing that I think is interesting about it is it, it with there's like the actual physical injury that's being done to to Pancho And then you look at, you see it sort of through the eyes of the kids on uh, the carousel and it sort of inverts it from the standard narrative. Well, it's not standard, but from a narrative where this is something that's happening to Lucky and he's that this is all his story and it's all about him as he and Hugo have brought something to this town and they're doing injury to this town as well they you know they've brought this violence to these people's fiesta that they all look forward to every year they've brought violence to these little kids lives and they've literally brought violence to poncho
3: and it's kind of setting them up to say this is going to be you someday you know we all take these beatings because we are latino in this white world where the whites can get away with anything and you know, here you are in 15, 20 years, kids, you're going to be getting a beating like this as well.
1: Yeah, and Pila takes a beating too for him. They both stand up to it pretty well and, and Gagan doesn't break, but he never quite recovers <laughs> from his yeah. beating until the action is over. That's a nice touch. The book obviously doesn't end the same way. How does it resolve in the book? Because Gagan or uh, Sailor, takes action at the end of the book. It's It's disastrous and and tragic but he clearly he recovered
0: i don't remember because i didn't finish rereading it in time (laughs) so i started listening to it on audible and haven't finished the audible reading
3: how is the audible recording because they have a lot of hues out there
0: it's pretty good hearing the things that lucky i'm sorry that sailor thinks out loud with someone saying them is just wrenching the the things he's saying about the Native Americans and the things he's saying about the Latino Americans is just, it's hard going. It's really well done. I would recommend it if you feel like you can listen to bleakness while you're cooking in your kitchen or whatever you do when you do <laughs> audiobooks.
1: It used to be commuting to work.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> things like that.
1: Mike, back to your point about um, about uh, Pancho getting uh, beat and in the, in the, what the kids and, and are taking away mm-hmm. from it, that this is your lot in life. Pancho's also got that amazing line about being knifed. He's like, oh, good. Knife is good. It's more easy to mm-hmm. fix. When you're young, everyone <laughs> sticks a knife in you. I've been stabbed <laughs> three times. I mean, that is amazing.
0: I'm am so interested in Pancho's life.
1: It's like these side
3: characters and these little characters, like even Zets, I'm like, okay, what is his story? How many cases has he been on like this?
0: And I'm kind of sad that we never got back to San Milo with Pila, just to see, you know, what we would discover there.
3: She's got an interesting ending, and I I, I don't know if I necessarily want to talk about the ending right now, but I will anyway. Here's this check, which is what Lucky has brought to town in order to try to blackmail Hugo. And then she ends up with the check, and it's either – it's really her decision at the end of the movie. Do you give the check to, to Rets and have him arrest Hugo, or do you give the check to Hugo and have the, the money that he was going to – the blackmail money that he was going to give to Lucky?
2: I don't know why I talk to a lug like you. Small fry. All your life you waste time worrying about small fry things. About a job, about a two-buck raise, about getting a pension. Why don't you ask for 300 grand? 300,000 bucks, Gagan. It'll set you up for the rest of your life. Give me... Give me that check. Here, Rex. Now you're talking. He can't hear you, Gagan. His tin ears busted. Maybe he can hear this.
3: If memory serves, you know, it is ultimately her choice rather than Lucky's. They take that away from him.
0: Lucky yeah, hands it
3: have,
0: over. He asks her for it, and she could have. I don't think he could have stopped her if she. She did anything, but she, yeah, she pulls it out of her bra and gives it to him.
3: They don't end up together. You know, this is very typical of noir where we don't have necessarily a happy ending, but this is the happier ending that I've seen in a long time from a noir where she and he don't get together. He leaves her, but then leaves her with the. She's kind of an outsider, even within the Latina community that they have. And she now is the star and she gets to tell this story. And that's how we end the movie is seeing her telling this story and acting these things out. Now she's got this cachet within the community where she finally is kind of more welcome to the rest of it because she's a
1: star.
0: And I like that the part of her story that we see is the part where she's telling them how she saved his life by clonking that guy on the head with a bottle.
1: They spend so much time in the early part of the film just staring at each other in incomprehending ways. They don't understand mm-hmm. each other. He's so rude, and you know, you don't even look human. And she's very well. I want to be human, and but by the end of it, they've both, through uh, the others' help, have uh, have become more human. He's he's become gentler and more. Uh, willing to rely on and be vulnerable to other people, trust other people. And she's become uh, more kind of independent, confident, dignified in her, you know, how she presents herself. She's gone back to her original uh, dress. You know, she was so disastrous when she tries to look like everybody else. But uh, yeah, they've both, they've both become human by the end of it. And it is not noir ending. I I would call the film a noir, but certainly uh goes the other direction at the end
0: i like that her his journey is sort of accepting other people and accepting bonds with other people and hers is accepting herself so she you know she comes in and she feels great and she's wearing her grandma's dress and he gives her some money and tells her to go look human and he means like go look like a fancier white lady it's a bit of a relief because that makeover could have gone so bad and it went bad but she didn't come back looking like a beautiful woman of the 40s like a beautiful white woman like the other like the white woman who's are tricked into thinking is maybe the femme fatale but isn't She, you know she comes back and she still has like a, a silk dress from New Mexico but now it's hers and she has that crazy haircut with the the silk flower <laughs> right on top of it, which, which is like her performance of gringo hood I guess um, And by the end, yeah, her her perm is, like, totally gone. She's, like, destroyed it. And then in the final scene, she's back to braiding her hair, but she's wearing her new dress that's her dress that reflects who she is and her place in the world and who she wants to be in the world.
3: The fiesta that is at the heart of this film is a very interesting one. It is this whole idea of this character, zobra, which is the Spanish word for, like, anxiety or worry once a year they take this huge marionette i think it's like supposed to be 50 feet high and is the representation of zozobra this uh they call it old man gloom and then they burn it and it's supposed to basically wipe away the gloom but i think everybody knows that gloom cannot just be taken away by lighting this thing on fire but at least there's one night of the year where you feel like you can conquer this and i really appreciate that that is at the heart of this film is them trying to, to dispel this gloom. So Zizobra is Santa Fe's boogeyman.
2: He was the brainchild of Will Schuster, who was one of the Cinco Pentores, who actually is the f- reason why Santa Fe became the art colony that it did. Schuster went down to Mexico with one of his friends and witnessed the fact that the, that this village actually built an effigy of Judas. And they would parade it through the town and people would spit at it and throw shoes at it. And at the end, they would go to their plaza and they would burn it. And this is how he came up with the
3: idea of how you would burn away your gloom. Montgomery, he's an interesting director. He had done some uncredited shooting for a John Ford film. They were expendable and mostly he's known for the Philip Marlowe film that he did um, lady in the lake, which is all shot POV uh, and you see him as Marlowe at times when the camera will look in a mirror and then you get to see him. It's a neat effect, not a hundred percent successful as a movie, it is what it is and in this there's some good shots you know talking about the scene i was just talking about with the merry-go-round i think that's very well shot the other shot that really impresses me is just a really nice match cut of zizobra's face over to hugo's face as he's eating it's a really nice way to take him and associate him with the zizobra character
1: yeah, I like that they're positioning uh you know another if you look up Zozobra another phrase used to describe him as the god of bad luck, you know and we've got uh that dissolved to Hugo linking mm-hmm. them you know so you got bad luck versus lucky and they they play around with the 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 name luck earlier too with uh, one of uh one of Hugo's henchmen. You don't ever quite understand his role is named Locke. You know, I had to put the subtitles on to, uh, wait, is this guy's name luck too? So it was, it was lock and lucky and Zobra or bad luck in Hugo. So, uh, obviously not from the book that that'd be the screenwriters, uh, putting that yeah. together, but, um, nice little theme.
0: Uh, I have a friend, Kate Laity, who's a medievalist, but she also teaches some film studies and she was talking about one aspect that she thinks of with, um, both the movie and the book, is that it has these little folklore elements. And when you were talking about that, I was thinking about the check, and the check almost feels like a cursed object. You know, like when he gets rid of the check, his luck changes, but he brings the check to this town, and everything becomes unfortunate for everyone that he encounters, and they get him out of it. But once he hands over the check, it's, you know, he's in the clear. It's like his own little Sazobra burning.
3: Carol, do you remember, because I don't, do you remember the significance of the pink horse?
0: I don't know that it's ever spelled out. I think it's for us to reflect on, but not specifically.
1: I listened to a couple of people try to explain it, and and it it never quite showed for me.
3: It seems like it's much more of a in-the-book thing than a in-the-movie thing, because I don't think they even say the title of the movie at all.
0: He tells her to take the pink one, but it's the first one they uncover. She, he's she's like, what should I ride? And he uncovers the I don't remember who uncovers it, but the horses had already been covered up for the night, and that was the first one that was uncovered. So he's like the pink one. And bit people realize It's an unusual like, title. They have the title now.
1: I do like, uh Mike that, you know, you pointed out as a black and white film that has a strange title and, and the one representation of the title we get. Can't tell mm-hmm. what color it is. But the way he delivers the line is like, eh, ride the pink one. It's the it's it seems like sort of an arbitrary choice yeah. uh, and and the the film is is definitely about him making choices throughout what he's going to do he's you know he comes to town with this vague idea like he, he doesn't seem he seems street smart he seems to think well on his feet and improvise you know the way he finds hugo's room by writing the letter having the note put in the the drop box and and he's he does several things that are clever, but he doesn't really seem to have a much of a plan. Doesn't know whether he's, he's just going to get cash or whether he wants to to kill him or he hasn't planned out enough to understand that there's not going to be any rooms for him in this town. So he improvises a lot, but you know, he's just kind of making choices as they're presented to him and, 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 So I I don't know if that's got something to do with it. Just sort of, hey, just play the hand that you're dealt. You know, don't think about it too hard. Uh, You can improvise as you go, or that's as close to uh, a significance as I came out of it.
3: Yeah, he seems like he must be very impulsive if he's just going to jump on this bus and go down here and not know anything about the town, anything about the hotel situation. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I I much— prefer to have reservations when I go someplace rather than just like, let's just drive into town and grab a room. I tried that once in Wilmington and it was the weekend of a um, a NASCAR race. So yeah, good luck with that. I had to keep on driving for like another two hours before I ever found a hotel.
0: You didn't sleep at a carnival?
3: I didn't. I didn't sleep under a lean-to. I don't get to use the word lean-to as much as I'd like.
1: The nice thing about that scene with uh, Pancho's house is, it doesn't really matter how nice the house is if you're drunk enough. And uh, he and and Pancho seems to be very much, you know, he, he's walking out of the the bar with him, and and he says, uh, you know, what's the matter? You drink the whole bottle, and you still seem sad. That's not good, you know. So you're <laughs> going to be sad no matter what.
0: Yeah, you but- don't know what you're doing. And it's a nice parallel to the like the fancy hotel that he thought he was going to stay in. It's filled with Hugo and Hugo's like horrible entourage of uh, cutthroat people, and then there's you know like Pancho who's sharing all his stuff and doesn't have very much. He's sharing his bed.
3: I did find it interesting the scene where he goes in to buy a drink and he's buying it at a bar on the quote wrong side of town. And this whole idea of all the eyes in the house on him and that Poncho kind of protects him in this place that could be bad. There's that moment when you think he's possibly going to get taken advantage of, but he doesn't seem to really mind it. He's actually bonding with people when the proprietor of the bar can't Cash the bill that he has because it's too big, and he's and the barman is too poor. He has not enough money in order to cash this bill that he has. So instead, Pancho comes up with the great idea of, "Hey, you pay you know for one drink, and then we'll drink the rest of the money, and you don't even need to get change." (laughs) (laughs) But
1: he seems genuinely touched. Yeah, kept waiting. For somebody to break into My Little Buttercup, you know, that was like exact scene from Three Amigos, uh, which is a film I, you know, watched over and over again as a kid. I, I'd love to watch those scenes back to back. I would like to talk about that opening scene. You said the, uh, the carnival scene was, was your favorite, uh, shot, but man, that opening long take of him coming into the bus station and and hiding the key and you know buying the gum and, and getting out the gun and it sets up so much really economically and beautifully and it reminded me a lot of uh, the scene in ilia kazanza the last tycoon where oh. robert de niro is describing you know he's got this uh Robert De Niro's the uh, the studio head, and Donald Pleasance is is this novelist who's come in to write movies for him. and And the complaint about Donald Pleasance is that his screenplays are just like novels; they're just just people talking too much. And you know, and then Donald Pleasance is very disdainful of the medium of the movies, and 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 Robert De Niro just describes these sets up. Here's what you do: you write, you know, use a scene, and and he. He does, he kind of acts out this scene that's all action. It's no words and it, it, it's very entrancing. Everyone is wrapped up in it. And, you know, at the end of it, Donald Pleasance is like, What do you pay me for? I don't understand the damn stuff. Yeah, you do because you're asking the right questions about it. Uh, you know, what's the significance of that? What's the significance of that? Uh, but you know, I'm just making pictures and that seemed like a really great. What's the significance of the gum? Uh, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, the gun, and 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 why is he buying gum? And then, oh, he's buying gum to hide a key, uh, you know a key to this piece of paper he's put in a locker. And what is you know we've got all these fantastic things already in our mind that a lazy screenwriter would have had five minutes of of dialogue you know about it. It's a wonderful comment on how you set up something in a movie. Uh, as opposed to, you know, a novel.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful. scene. Sim- the whole movie is beautiful and really well constructed. And Russell Maddy just has like such an amazing and diverse filmography as a cinematographer. Like I was looking it up again to refresh myself before this, and it's it's interesting to think that he shot this and he shot movies with Douglas Sirk and he shot with Wells. It's it's just mm-hmm. it's a great looking great constructed film.
3: Maybe he was the one that shot the reshoots for Amberson's. And then he ended up working with Wells again on touch of evil, if memory serves.
0: And the strange. Work, oh, I right. I, and I think he did like written on the wind with the sir. Yeah. He can do the, like this, this very clean black and white. That reminds me more of like, that's why I was thinking about border incident. Cause it, it's like a really clean, in the daytime, very white looking noir, you know, and you know, it's not like Alton or Masaraka. but then you can do those like glossy high melodrama colors from Cirque.
3: Yeah. When you say Cirque, that's the first thing that comes to mind is those colors because seeing written on the wind, I was very fortunate to see that in a film class. And yeah, it's just so saturated. It's amazing. And then talking about the screenplay, I mean, you don't get better people than Charles Lederer and Ben Hecht to adapt the screenplay. And I think there was Uncredited by Joan Harrison, who is another just top-notch screenwriter. You, you're really firing on all cylinders. And I think they are propping up Montgomery, who probably knew he might have been in a little too deep without a, all these heavy hitters behind him.
0: I don't know how to say it without sounding uncharitable, and I don't feel uncharitable when I say this, but I'm trying to find the good things in his, in his presence in this film. Because it's not like in real life, you don't have people like that who look and talk and act like him. On the other hand, it's film, so it's not real life.
3: <laughs> that is true.
0: I do have like a thing I can say that leads to the, possibly to the hanged man because I felt the opposite way about the hanged man, like I felt like Robert Colt did a very good job and was working so hard to be that seething, angry sailor guy from from the book in a way that Robert Montgomery was not.
3: I found it interesting too that this idea of us changing sailor to lucky and us changing the I, I, I want to say that in one, in the book, he might just be kind of a ne'er-do-well, but in the movie, he's a veteran. The idea of the bad guy being Hugo in the movie, but in the book, he's Sen, S-E-N, short for senator. So again, it kind of points to this larger corruption that the senator is the one who murdered his buddy. Uh, and I'm trying to remember his buddy's name, because I think that might also change between the two. Shorty.
0: You all can call me shorty. Yeah, well, he he had, them um, like, he was being blackmailed because he had paid the senator, not in the, in the um, movie, but in the book, this, the senator had paid to have his wife murdered. And so the blackmail was about covering up that he had murdered his wife.
3: Kind of showing that if you're rich and powerful in America, you can get away with anything.
0: We'll make movies of it. They'll be like, no, this is too hot. We'll make him a gangster. Or, or in The hangman, we'll make him Jimmy Hoffa.
1: It's interesting that that change occurred in in the the project that Robert Montgomery was and uh, as you know Montgomery was a uh, so lifelong Republican and and things like that. But the film definitely leans left, and the uh, to change it from a corrupt government official to a corrupt industrialist and have the government man, you know, the the Art Smith character be the the hero or anti-hero sides with the government over the private businessmen in the end even if it's more out of revenge than justice per se or doing the right thing you know i mean hugo if this movie were made today you know would probably be based on dick cheney or eric prince or somebody like that uh more profiteer and and just obscenely wealthy and and and
3: All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be right back with an interview with Sarah Weinman, author of Unspeakable Acts, True Tales of Murder, Deceit, and Obsession, right after these brief messages. Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and I'm the host of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, a new podcast where I have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. I was scared because I thought, oh, what am I doing? Like, here I am selling my soul. But when I realized what the movie was, it's like, I'm in. Let's do, let's make this wonderful movie. The freedom of ad-libbing and letting things happen in the moment. With Stephen Trask, let's
2: write something that involves stand-up comedy. Drag, punk, rock.
0: It was so rebellious and precocious, I guess. The definition of gay to me is freedom.
3: Women gave the show its life, I feel like. Well, it's also a bit of a hunk fest. You guys are right, hot true. as hell. You are too kind. That was only, <laughs> that was only 15 years ago. It's a no-holds-barred talk with iconic creators and performers. It's not f- white people, it's
1: not, I hate white people, it's dear white people. It's how you start a letter. The whole climax of the show was a sex scene between Malkior and Vendla, and I remember feeling personally self-conscious about never having been with a woman in any way, (laughs) shape, or form. I'm always thinking about the audience. Make them feel, make them laugh, and make them cry. I mean, that's as simple as it is for me.
0: I had been not wanting to be a part of the film. It was clear in the edit that I had to, you know, really reshape it. So the film really told me what it needed to be.
1: Cinema is an empathy machine and and
3: it sort of allows you to see yourself in people's faces that you normally wouldn't see humanity in i get emotional just talking about it and the tea is definitely spilled
1: david don't edit anything of this out (laughs) no no they don't want to hear all the charming stories they want to hear the ugly gory
3: relationship that jim and i have (laughs) we're cutting that part (laughs) out by the way and with guests like john cameron mitchell christine vachon laverne cox jonathan groff justin simeon jim fall miss coco peru rachel mason jeffrey schwartz H.P. Mendoza and fabulous queens Shangela, Eureka, and Bob the Drag Queen. I'm sweating the house down. Oh, mama. You never know what's going to come up. You know me, I'm so big and strong that Eureka and Bob actually <laughs> hide behind me and I protect She's them. She is quite the chihuahua, mama. She does pop up. I was up. like,
1: wait, should we have had security the whole time? <laughs> I
3: think they think I'm the security, bitch. It's season one of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, premiering in the summer of 2020. Hope you can join us.
0: This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference.
4: Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zara and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at FatherMalone.com and on iTunes.
3: I've talked to so few people that even know who Dorothy B. Hughes is. It's sad.
4: Part of that was, I don't want to say by design, but she was not someone who sought fame and fame didn't seek her out in the way that it did say Patricia Highsmith. So I don't think she just wasn't interviewed to the same level. And part of it too, I think is that like Highsmith, she just didn't lead as dramatic and as complicated a life as Highsmith did. So there's a reason why Highsmith gets two biographies and Hughes doesn't get any, at least so far.
3: Before we dive into Dorothy Hughes a little bit more, I'm curious about you. Can you tell me a little bit about your past and why I would be talking to you about Dorothy Hughes?
4: In the context of this conversation, I edited two anthologies, one of which was a collection of short stories by women crime writers writers, roughly from the dawn of the second world war to the early 1970s. And that was called troubled daughters, twisted wives. And it came out in 2013. And then a couple of years later, I edited a two volume set for the library of America called women, crime writers, eight suspense novels of the 1940s and fifties. And those eight suspense novels were, and I'm going off the top of my head and it's been five years. So forgive me if I'm not a hundred percent, accurate on it but um the 40s volume had laura by vera Caspery, the blank wall by elizabeth sansay holding in a lonely place by dorothy b hughes and the horizontal man by helen eustace and the 50s volume had mischief by charlotte armstrong fool's gold by Dolores hitchens uh, beast in view by margaret millar and the blunderer by patricia highsmith And so in the process of putting these two volumes together, we realized that six of the eight books had been adapted into film. And so I think within a few months of the set being published, there was a parallel film series at film forum also called women crime writers. So it featured Laura and this reckless moment and several Highsmith adaptations and a couple of Charlotte Armstrong adaptations in France by uh, Claude Chabrol, among other films. So that's kind of the context for, I think, why you're reaching out to me.
3: Well, and then you're also a writer yourself.
4: I am. So more recently, I am the author of The Real Lolita, which is on the kidnapping of 11-year-old Sally Horner in Camden, New Jersey, in the late 1940s, which is not only referenced in Lolita, but was enough of an inspiration that it helped Vladimir Nabokov to finish the book. And even more recently, in fact, it's out in just about a month. I'm the editor of an anthology of recently published true crime features, and that's called Unspeakable Acts, True Tales of Crime, Murder, Deceit, and Obsession.
3: When did you first come across Dorothy B. Hughes's work?
4: It probably would have been around 2004 when In a Lonely Place and another earlier novel, The Blackbirder*, were republished by the feminist press as part of their Women Write Pulp series. So I believe Vera Caspary's novel, Laura, was also part of that series, as was her other novel, Bedelia. There was, I think, The Girls of 3B and a few others. But I just remember reading In a Lonely Place, and at that time, I was in my mid-20s, and I was a serious crime fiction reader. And I had a blog at the time chronicling current crime fiction releases and what was sort of happening in that community. And I read In a Lonely Place, and I was just so bowled over because I just couldn't fathom, but I was so amazed at how Hughes was able to write this book from the vantage point and you can't really have spoiler alerts for a novel published in 1947, but fair warning to anyone reading it who has not read in the lonely place. But the fact that here she was in the head of someone who is so clearly a malevolent psychopath. And yet he himself is sort of clued out to what other people know about him. So from a writerly standpoint, it was amazing. And that's why I would go back and reread it every year but also just from a reader standpoint, it's just an excellently constructed, well-done thriller, uh, a little under 200 pages, great characters, a great sense of what Los Angeles was like in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And it's just still, to my mind, the my favorite crime novel by my favorite crime writer. So the fact that here's this great novel that is the source material for this great film that's quite different. But they're, to my mind, they're very much in conversation with one another, even as they sprout off into different directions.
3: I was completely blown away the first time I read that, just because I was so familiar with the film. The book and the movie, two great works of art, though not very similar.
4: No, but at the same time, I don't know how, in a lonely place, the novel could have been adapted at that time, especially with the Hayes Code still being in effect. It's one thing to be on edge that Humphrey Bogart, as Dick Steele might have done something terrible, but it's another thing for us to know straight away that he's a psychopath who's serially murdering women. It's just, it would never have been able to be filmed then. But, and this happened when I rewatched the film as part of the women crime writers film series at film forum, just the ending with him with Laurel gray played by Gloria Graham. I mean that I still get chills thinking about that end scene when they're, when he's, just on the edge and about to go over. And after that, like there's, there's nothing more for it to go. It's such a climactic scene. It's so filled with tension. It's so filled with all of the pathos and loathing that have been building up all throughout the movie and what Nicholas Ray had been setting up and all the dynamics between him and his actors. And of course with Gloria, who he was about to divorce. So it's just, there's so much going on and it's all there and it's, amazing to behold on screen.
3: What was Hughes's relationship like with Hollywood?
4: Complicated, I think is a fair way to answer it. She benefited from the fact that Hollywood was extremely interested in adapting her books to film. So in addition to in a lonely place, getting adapted, you had ride the pink horse, which was her novel set in uh, Santa Fe. New Mexico, where she lived for quite a number of years. And I believe The Fallen Sparrow, which is a novel featuring um, a veteran. It's been a few years since I've read that one. And others that got close to being developed and made. And I remember when I was doing my piece on Hughes for the Los Angeles Review of Books some years ago and looking at the archives of, say, Variety and the Los Angeles Times and finding all these mentions of projects that were slated for something, but of course never went anywhere. And so it was, it was very indicative of the 1940s that suspense stories by women were really hot properties and Hughes benefited. But what I also find interesting is that, and thinking specifically about in a lonely place, considering how much that novel means to me and to so many crime writers, I know it at least publicly didn't really register that much for Hughes, She didn't really talk about it often in interviews. I suspect that the adaptation process may have been fraught enough that she just didn't want to talk about it. She was much more forthcoming, I think, with respect to Ride the Pink Horse, or The Fallen Sparrow, or other novels that didn't get adapted. I know she mentioned uh, The Delicate Ape, which was published, I believe, in between, or just before Pink Horse and Lonely Place as her favorite. So it just goes to show that novels that resonate with readers aren't necessarily the ones that writers think are their absolute favorites.
3: You've written a lot about Dread Journey.
4: I have, which is another of my favorites. Dread Journey, simply put, is a thriller set on a cross-country train, like a Pullman car, and it features a whole bunch of Hollywood characters who might seem to be stock characters. You have the villainous producer and the aggrieved starlet who believes she may be targeted for murder and other actors and actresses and um, assistants. And so when I first read it, I just was so taken with Hughes's gimlet eyed observations about what Hollywood seemed to be at the time in the mid 1940s. And of course it's set on a train so it's a sort of enclosed space people can't leave and of course there are also outsider characters in particular James Cobbett who's a black porter who sees all and knows all and he's sort of interested but also at a remove understandably and of course this ties into another recurring theme of Hughes's works is that she wrote very sympathetically with respect to African American characters And she really did feel uh, a sense of injustice as she wrote them. Like they were not caricatures. They were not characters to be laughed at, but they had real substance to them. So Cobbett was one. And then much later when she wrote the novel, the expendable man that really comes into play. Her sense of fairness, I suppose is a good way to put it. So yeah, it's just, it's a, hugely enjoyable novel and when I reread it for the reissue that came out last December I just was taken with it all over again.
3: What are some of the other themes that you picked up on in her work?
4: Partly it had to do with place so she was in her early novels, she wrote a lot about New York because she had spent time there she had gone to journalism school um, I believe at Columbia so she did live there for some time but New Mexico in particular was a huge part of her body of work because it was a huge part of her life. She had met and married Levi Hughes, who was from there had, they had children together and they lived there. And with Los Angeles, which is another setting that's prominent in her work, there is a sense of dislocation and it comes through obviously in particular with lonely place, but it also carries through in other works as well. And the thing with Hughes, that's also interesting to discuss is the sort of stop and start nature of her career. So she began her writing career as a poet, and she had a collection that was published early on. But she didn't publish her first novel, The So Blue Marble, until 1940. And then between that year and In a Lonely Place being published in 1947, she wrote and published 11 suspense novels. So she was quite prolific. And most of them are very good. And then a few years lapsed between Lonely Place and her next book, The Candy Kid, a couple of years to The Davidian Report, which is more of an espionage novel. Eric Ambler, who wrote A Coffin for Demetrios and other excellent spy novels, was a huge, huge influence on Hughes's work. She dedicated novels to him. She openly cited him as someone she tried to emulate and admired. And then after Davidian Report came out, there was an 11 year hiatus because she needed time to take care of her aging parent as well. Uh, Her children had started having children of their own and they needed help. So she just didn't have the time and emotional energy to devote to novels. So instead she paid more attention to what I think of as her side hustle, which is as a crime fiction reviewer for places like the Los Angeles times. And I believe a New York newspaper And she did that for quite a number of years. She also researched and wrote a biography of Earl Stanley Gardner, who is probably best known for writing the Perry Mason series, but he was a hugely prolific crime novelist, I think well over a hundred novels. So she wrote that book and it won the Edgar award in 1978, but she was still sort of active in mystery writers of America circles and was friends with other crime writers. Well, into her 70s and 80s, and then she ended up retiring out to Ashland, Oregon, which is probably best known for its annual Shakespeare Festival, and she died there in 1993. So that's sort of the potted history of Dorothy B. Hughes. Tell me a
3: little bit more about Ride the Pink Horse. What are your impressions of that?
4: So I have to admit, it's been a little while since I reread it, but I still remember just this feeling of the hair standing on the back of my neck that sailor i believe his name is when he comes to town and he has revenge on his mind and you just feel that palpable sense that is he going to get what he wants or is he going to figure out that that's not actually what he wanted in the first place and so it's not just about his quest but it's also about what santa fe was like at that particular point and there's a pivotal moment around an annual festival that's held around Labor Day weekend involving the burning of Zozobra, which is something that I was actually hoping to witness myself this year, but then the pandemic happened and obviously no one is traveling much of anywhere. Uh, But it's also, I think interesting to think about it in terms of the whole story behind Zozobra that this effigy was invented by this, dude living in town in the 20s and they just kept burning it year after year and what does that signify and is this kind of culturally appropriate anymore and these are questions that I feel are touched on in Ride the Pink Horse but I bet if I went back and reread it now I'd view it with a much more uh, not so much critical lens but just again just the way that stuff written a long time ago resonates differently when you read it now or when you read it five years from now. So I'll be curious when I come back to it what that will feel like. I
3: know it's set in Santa Fe, but it almost feels like Santa Fe is in another world, another country. It, it yeah. kind of reminds me a little bit of um, the way they go back and forth across the border in A Touch of Evil.
4: Yes, yes. I, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me in particular if Orson Welles, having watched The film version was taking some cues from Ride the Pink Horse for for Touch of Evil. I can totally see it in my mind right now, in fact.
3: And the film wasn't available for a long time, other than kind of a bootleg 16mm transfer that was floating uh, around out there. Um, What were your thoughts about the film?
4: I liked the film. I think it just didn't resonate with me quite in the same way as Hughes' novel. But I certainly remember the festival feeling very palpable and in the moment and just that level of suspense was quite prevalent. So I was taken with it, but just not in the same way as the book. And that's, that's just a common thing with me because I just tend to always go for the book first and then judge adaptations and not so much the other way around. I I mean, I wish I wish I could be in reverse just to kind of get a sense of how how do you come to a book having seen the film, but that's just never, almost never what happens with me.
3: Do you always just go out of your way to read the book first?
4: It just ends up that I've probably read the book first, whether it was by design or not.
3: The problems of being a voracious reader.
4: Something like that. As
3: problems go, it's a real high-end one. I take it that Robert Montgomery must have been really taken with the story since he ended up being in the movie and doing it for his TV show.
4: Yes, and I've seen the TV adaptation as well, and I liked it a lot. I don't think it's quite as good as the original film, but it still had that same level of suspense.
3: How did you manage to find the TV show?
4: I swear I saw a a bootleg of it on YouTube some years ago, and don't and I have no idea if it's even up anymore. But I just remember looking for something and stumbling upon it going, oh, this is on here. Okay, Um, I guess I'm going to watch it because I'm very curious. And yeah, I thought it was pretty good. But not, I'd say if I had to do a ranking, it would be TV version and then film version and then the book. That's also a completely unfair ranking. Thank
3: you again for your time. This was so wonderful talking with you.
4: Excellent. Likewise. And thank you for thanking me for this. Da primeira cirurgia plástica. Porque hoje Hoje
3: é sábado. E dando os trâmites por findos. Porque hoje
2: é
1: sábado.
2: A perspectiva do domingo. Porque hoje.
3: Alright, we are back, and we were talking about Ride the Pink Horse. Now, apparently Montgomery really liked this because he had a TV show that ran from 50 to 57, Robert Montgomery Presents. And this was one of the adaptations or one of the, the episodes of the show. Unfortunately, I was not able to find it. I looked high and low, though I was able to find an episode of the show Destry that used this same idea. And it's interesting because Destry is our main character, so he has to be a lot more sympathetic than Lucky Gagan or Sailor. He has to be Destry because we're going to follow this guy throughout all of these episodes. I was very impressed with what they did with this. They ended up taking Destry and putting him in a different town, I guess. hes I think he's on the lookout for... A, um, somebody who wronged him. That's what I'm getting from the opening credits. And he's got a picture of this guy who wronged him. And the man who is murdered at the beginning of the episode is a photographer. So there's this whole mix up between the photo that the photographer took, which may or may not be a photo of this bank robber or robbers versus the photo of this guy who wronged destry so it was interesting that they were able to play around with it i was actually very impressed with what they did with this and the story moves along very quickly for i think this
1: is a little bit under an hour show i mean they took out a lot of him being in a totally foreign culture and 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 being very out of place they i mean they they had Pancho and, and Pila characters more or less represented, but it he wasn't so out of his depth in that episode as, as uh, Lucky Gagan or Sailor was.
0: They took a lot of sordidness out of it. If you had not shared this with us as an adaptation or something strongly influenced, I'm not sure if I had watched it on my own, I would have necessarily caught, just because uh, so many Westerns have episodes or, or elements of... You know the the cowboy interacts with Mexicans or Mexican Americans or with Indigenous people and and uh, is the fish out of water.
1: Wonder if it came through association with Wanda Hendricks, uh, seeing as how she was married mm-hmm. briefly to uh, uh, Audie um, and and he played Destry in the movie.
0: Um, yeah, I was gonna if you guys knew how this happened.
3: I gave John Gavin a lot of shit when we talked about Psycho, because I don't think that he's the strongest part of Psycho by far. But as Destry, I really liked him. I found him very charming.
0: Yep, he's a good cowboy.
3: And I went out there, um, looking for other Dorothy Hughes adaptations because there was another Robert Montgomery Presents called The Davidian Report that was based on something that she did. There was an episode of Climax, an episode of Bourbon Street, uh, Beat. And all of these TV shows, there are like little pockets of things that are available. Like I did find a, whole, uh, cachet of TV show where I managed to find last week. We talked about, um, the big clock. So I was looking for all these Kenneth Fearing adaptations and I was like, okay, good. I've managed to find this, but climax is tough to find. I can find Bourbon Street beat every once in a while. And then with Destry, thank goodness the entire series is out there on DVD. So I had ended up buying that and ripping it for one episode. So thanks a lot, but I found it interesting.
1: That Destry episode uh, was 1964. So was The Hanged Man, directed by mm-hmm. Don Siegel. The Destry episode was in April. The Hanged Man was in November. And in October, another made-for-TV Don Siegel movie was not released on TV, but rather theatrically, The Killers. And and both The Killers and The Hanged Man are remakes of previous uh, film noir. You know, The Killers from the... Uh, Sidamek, uh i shit, how do you pronounce his name? Uh the, the Burt Lancaster uh movie, The Killers, uh, was remade uh by Siegel and and Ride the Pink Horse was remade as the Hanged Man, and both remakes by Siegel are very different from the uh from the originals.
0: Yeah.
3: In my notes I have that The Hanged Man is no the killers. <laughs> I really liked The Killers. Yeah, it might be my favorite. I wasn't so hot on the hanged man, though. Unfortunately,
1: yeah, no. I mean, it's it doesn't stand up to Ride the Pink Horse or the Killers. I think if there were a nicer cut, uh, a print of it, um, some of those colors in the carnival might might pop more in in uh, the Mardi Gras, and and God, that uh, scene of uh, Whitey unmasked where he takes off the mask and the bottom half of his face is, is clown Mm -hmm. makeup. And the top half is, you know, is just his, his face. That is ghoulish looking. That is really striking. And, you know, so there's a couple minutes of it that I could see really might look fantastic, but yeah, not, not my favorite uh, Don Siegel movie by a stretch. I like Robert
3: Culp. And to your point, Carol, I liked what he was trying to do. With this, I wasn't getting the rest of it, and I have to say, so rather than this being Latin Americans uh, for this one, it is set in Louisiana. So we have these kind of Cajun Americans slash gypsies, maybe I guess. I'm I'm guessing Celine, who is the Pila stand-in. I'm guessing she's supposed to be more of a romani type of a person because she's got the uh, tarot cards and all this kind of stuff. The woman that played Celine Brenda Scott, man, she is not good. The her presence is probably the weakest point for this to me anyway, and I'm just like not not getting it. I I'm not feeling her at all in this.
0: Yeah, they've made a lot of choices I wouldn't make it's perfectly fine as a made for tv movie that you know is passing the time but as an adaptation of ride the pink horse i don't i don't think it's terribly successful and yeah i feel like robert culp that, that thing yeah with 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 the makeup with the clown makeup was stunning and i wish it had it, more of the the film had or sorry yeah more of the film had been like that but i know why they said it In New Orleans, and I know why they said it at Mardi Gras, but it takes away from so much of what was happening with the fiesta and with Sosobra in the Robert Montgomery film, where it feels more like studio heads were like, oh, well, you know, send you down to New Orleans and you'll film a few days of Mardi Gras. And it's colorful and people like that, as opposed to like, it's kind of an integral part of the story and if, if you don't have something like where you can do the parallel cut of this Oprah burning and going back to Hugo or, or something like that it, it's another it ends up being sort of like another crime made for tv movie even though like I said I, I I liked watching Robert Culp just try so hard and and you know like acting his heart out I really appreciated that <laughs> I wish I'd like to thank him for that
1: It's also kind of uh, antithetical to Ride the Pink Horse film in that The Hanged Man is ultimately just, it. it is just hard-boiled right down to, it It comes down to who can be the most ruthless, who can be the least dependent on other, you know, he's doing, Robert Culp is doing everything for his friend Whitey, and then at the end it turns out, whitey wasn't even killed whitey's been pulling the strings the whole time whitey's the real bad guy here and he's been playing robert colt for a sap where you know ride the pink horse he does become human by the end by his reliance and acceptance of of help yes. from uh other other people and and yeah very antithetical
0: it felt like they didn't understand, like whether they were going from the book or the movie, they didn't understand either what they were reading or what they were, uh, what they had seen. And I, I know that can't be true. So I assume that it's just, you know, like they, they, someone wanted to do it and they had to make a lot of compromises to get it made It's either like public taste or what executives wanted.
3: Really doesn't help that last week when we were talking about The Big Clock, one of the movies that I watched was Out of Time, which is an unofficial uh, remake of The Big Clock, which has this whole idea of these burned up bodies and the woman and man, the Dean King character playing uh, Denzel for Sap. And so as soon as Culp comes into town and sees this burned up body, which Thank goodness for Pat uh is showing him. I'm just like, okay, well, Whitey's not dead. He's going to come back at some point. So it was just kind of ruined the whole thing for myself. I was like, all right. yep. I just saw this other movie where the same thing happened. So at some point, Whitey's going to show up and which is a shame because I love Edmund O'Brien and I think that he makes a great heavy. I mean, Don Siegel He's a great director, and he surrounds himself with great actors. I mean, I was so happy when I saw Norman Fell, though, again, with Norman Fell, when I see um Culp at the bus station, I think it is, and he's looking around, and they show a shot of Fell. I'm just like, hey, it's Norman Fell. <laughs> as soon as I see him, I'm like, okay, he's going to be in here. He's going to come back into the story. It was kind of undone by my love for Siegel and my research for other things.
0: Hey, Norman Fell looked so happy to be there, though. Like, oh, look at this character.
3: Well, Norman Fell, my God. Talking about the killers, yeah. the scene in The Killers with him in the steam machine, and um Lee Marvin and Clue Gulager when they come in, and Gulager wipes his glasses on Norman Fell's sweaty head to wipe his glasses off. Oh, it's so good. I love it. I'm not sure why I'm not talking about The Killers right now.
0: Because <laughs> you don't want to talk about the hangman.
1: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> But in The Hanging Man, at least he's called Gaylord, and they get a good joke out of that.
0: <laughs> if this was like Colchick the Night Strangler, and this was like a pilot for a TV show, I would watch the TV show with Robert Cult, the Norman Fell.
3: Oh, yeah, them going around and, and getting corrupt people and bringing them to justice.
0: Him learning to be human, but slowly, and sometimes having like, oh, he pulled another guy off the truck like that, don't do that. He punched <laughs> another guy, don't do that.
3: <laughs> I didn't get to use my line about how Destry seems like a show that Rick Dalton would guest star on, but I guess I'll say that some other time
0: Do it right now, you just did it Just edit that
3: Alright guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show This is Eddie Coyle I got five Smiths, two Moogers and a
2: 357 mag You can hold a bank with that thing all by yourself mm-hmm. And these are his friends.
0: You got any more, guys? Is anything you can get? In the world of Eddie Coyle and his
2: friends, the real world of crime, cops cannot operate without information, and criminals cannot survive without favors
1: it's funny. who's calling up remember any fingers
2: you know, i want 10 guns i want them tomorrow night i'll be right there with the money same place where we were before i'll be there with the money you be there with those damn guns because if you ain't i'll be looking for you and i'll find you too hell away. i hear it you may be mixed up in something that's going on <laughs> What did you do? You hit me a lot. Suppose I was to give you those guys. they knocking off the banks. Are you hooked in with the mafia or something? Tell you the truth,
1: I don't know. There's this heavyset guy, you know? People are desperate for guns. I had a guy ask me seriously the other day, can I get him a few machine guns? You tell me about
2: a guy that's going to get hit, 15 minutes later he gets hit. You tell me about some guys on a job, but you
1: don't tell me till they're coming out the door with the money
2: suppose we was to talk about machine guns.
1: Look, I got two problems selling machine guns to people like you. The first is selling machine
2: guns. That's life in this state. If I give you this, I can't do no time. These guys have got friends, you know, and uh, I would not live to get out. take him now. We take him. It's a grubby, violent, dangerous world. But it's the only world they know. And they're the only friends Eddie Coyle has.
3: That's right. Noir November 2020 continues next week with a look at Peter Yates' The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Carol and Jedediah. So Jedediah, what is the
1: latest with you, sir? Absolutely nothing. You are the worst at I this am. part of the I'm show. I'm terrible. I, you know what? I stopped doing things as soon as I started appearing on this show. <laughs> you should be like, hey, go check out my
3: book, Peckerwood. It's available on Amazon and in your finer bookstores if they're open during the pandemic.
1: It's out of print now. You can get it on Kindle. It is. Yeah, it's out of print. You can get it on Kindle still, but that's it. Maybe your library has one. Maybe your secondhand bookstore has one. Are you working on another book? Ah, shouldn't I be? It seems like, it. Not really. You know, there's a follow up I've been writing for 12 years, and that's not an exaggeration. And I've. Le- Fewer words on it every year. Like I just keep cutting more. Saying, no, that doesn't work. So, no. It'll be a very
3: short book when it comes out. Just two pages.
0: It'll be perfect, though. <laughs> It'll be yeah, perfect. Yeah, yes.
3: It'll be the right two pages.
0: God, I do that. I relate to that so hard.
3: And Carol, how is life in the cultural gutter?
0: Oh, the life in the gutter is good. I assume by the time this airs, gutterthon will be over. And, um... All our writers will be paid, and there will be things for people to read at culturalcutter.com. We are dedicated to thoughtful writing about this reputable art.
1: See? Learn from Carol. Oh, beautiful, Carol. I, I will go to that website and read that. That sounds amazing.
0: We have a really good piece up right now about Laurie Strode.
1: Nice.
3: Oh, cool. Yeah,
0: Angela wrote it. Angela is a superstar. Everybody's a superstar.
3: Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.